Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Feeding Curiosity. Today's episode, we're back talking about the moral reasoning or psychology of moral reasoning. So part one, we basically did the foundations of it, who are the prominent figures, philosophers, and their ideas, and then some critiques on those ideas. And now we're going to I'll pass it off to Joe to give the introduction to what this next part will be, and then we'll jump right into the PowerPoint. Sure. So last time we talked a lot about Lawrence Kohlberg and his um, moral stages of development, and then we noticed some of the things that he got wrong or that he couldn't account for. One was that he is a rationalist. His philosophy is a rationalist philosophy, and so it takes uh, the stance that individuals are peer groups and they derive moral lessons from those peer groups and by putting, taking the perspective of their peers and then abstracting out moral principles that transcend even their culture. All right. So they end up playing in a rational abstract domain. But what that neglects is the idea of intuition. There are intuitionist uh, moral thinkers uh, that we'll get into in a moment. Uh, but also it lacks, uh, not, it lacks hierarchical moral relationships because if I take your perspective, uh, it is easier for me to take your perspective if you're my peer, because I understand where you've been. I'm walking a mile in your shoes, but I have a harder time taking the perspective of my boss. I don't have his job. I've never had his job. I have no idea what it's like to have his job. And so largely what we get from Kohlberg is a missing of the hierarchical relationships and intuitionist relationships. So we need a way of accounting for those. We did that by uh, trying to define a first, a pragmatic definition of truth that emerges out of a process ontology and a process ontology is the idea that everything's constantly in flux, that everything is moving, that change is the most fundamental thing we can say about reality. And then to say any truth statement about something that's changing all the time means that you're trying to actually say uh, not a statement so much about reality as it is in this exact moment, so much as you're trying to say something about something that is stable across that change. What, mm. it, it, anything that I'm, that I say that's true needs to remain true tomorrow. It's almost like looking that, for a constant. If you were like taking this as a science. Right. It's looking for a constant. And so that a, a, uh, any, how do you say this? That instead of having, um, something like an objective truth, meaning an object that is a true and you can describe it and that remains true forever. Instead, you have approximate truths that are hierarchically arranged. They can be more or less true depending on how long it remains true under this constant changing dynamic. And so, for example, gravity is a serious truth. It is constantly around and just about anything you can say about gravity continues to be true forever. Um, but so is something like um, the phenomena color. Uh, and this is more available than something like any true statement you might say about a chair, because that same chair might decompose in the time between now and when you read <laughs> right? And so then under this constant flux, you get a pragmatic definition of truth and a pragmatic definition of good, 
would be those things that are in some sense good for the, the species or good for a group of people over the longest period of time. They remain stable, stable goods under a constant change. And that leads you to realize that that thing that remains, how would you say, that thing that remains slowly changing enough, that's tempo is slow enough, that is stable for long enough, um, becomes like an object, like a feature of the environment that you adapt to. And so we account for it. We embody mm. it, right? We adapt to it. It becomes a part of our, our biology. And out of that, once you, is what emerges moral foundation theory. Now, I don't think Jonathan Haidt would, has put it that way. He might think that way, but he hasn't put it that way. I'm adding to it and saying that once you recognize um, that you can adapt to these um, constant goods across the development of human species, then those things that adapted to that can be exapted or utilized for moral reasoning purposes. Okay. And Ooh. there are, according to Haidt, five or six of these moral foundations. So these are structures in our biology that can be utilized to, uh, I suppose, help with human flourishing, to help move us forward. Okay. So moral foundations theory, the creators, you guys like Jonathan Haidt, Craig Joseph, and Jesse Graham, uh, its innovations are largely that it fits in an evolutionary framework. You'll notice that uh, process and ontological view fits really nicely with evolution because evolution is a process. Um, accounts for intuition that these these uh, moral foundations, these embodied recognitions of our social circumstances, um, are intuitions. They produce intuitions. Uh, accounts for morality beyond care and fairness, um, which was a big problem with Kohlberg. Mm. So the Hobbesian view, it counts for the Hobbesian view in a way that, um, that Colbert just did not. He's more of a Rousseauist, whether that's a purpose or not. So quote, we do moral reasoning, not to reconstruct the actual reasons why we ourselves come to a judgment or came to a judgment. We reason to find the best possible reasons to why somebody else ought to join us in our judgment. Right, that the actual explicit reasoning is sort of, uh, what is it, the cream on the cake, right? It's intuitions and emotions behave as low resolution forms of cognition, appraising situations in relationship to a goal and whether it helps or hinders one's advance. So that's coming out of the appraisal theory of emotion, that all of your positive negative emotions are derived from their relationship to a goal and that bad emotions signify uh-oh, this is not going well. <laughs> and putting emotions <laughs> signify keep doing that. Dopamine seems to play that way. And that you, um, dopamine, when you, when I go, go through a series of behaviors in order to get a piece of cake and then eat that piece of cake, dopamine is released and that reinforces the behaviors that come before it. And it's something like saying that worked really well. Um, let's keep doing that thing that works well. Now that can be hijacked by cocaine and then you can just be pursuing cocaine all the time and then become an addict. It can reinforce itself. That reinforcement process is what creates the addiction, but we'll move up with that. So reasoning occurs post hoc. Intuitions are the branches from which the leaves of moral reasoning grow. 
shake the branch and the leaves rattle. So you'll get a lot of, that's a guiding metaphor throughout this whole thing, is that a lot of these experiments will go to the intuition, which is like the branch, and they'll activate that intuition, that foundation, that moral foundation, and then watch how the reasoning changes. So you shake the branch, leaves will rattle. Okay, the first one is care and harm. So I have a couple of really nice representative paintings or sculptures up here of this. Karen Harn comes out of a lot of the, um, a lot of the kind of attachment theory stuff, the dyad between attachment figure and usually mother and child. And so you see like the Pieta from Michelangelo, it's kind of beautiful recognition of this connection, but then you can have, I had to put this out there because it's, it's inverse, uh, Pieta Occulta by Roberto Ferri, which is this painting that reverses everything in this pretty remarkable way, instead of the mother, the Pieta, right? She's offering up her son to the world, right? I mean, he's passed away and she's warning him in this. It's a tragic thing, but she's tragically passing him on, um, which is the good mother. Um, you have, um, instead you have the, the terrible or consuming mother who is not so much resigned, but content in some sense with the situation that she's in as her son clings to her. Right. So he won't leave. He won't go out into the world to adventure. And you can see that's turning him into stone. And so he's becoming stagnant and brittle. If you notice, there's actually stones that are coming off of him, pieces that are breaking off. So he's, he's turned to stone. He's stagnant. He's become brittle in his, because of his relationship with her, which she in fact has enticed him into just as he's agreed to be a part of this. So they're both at fault. And there's roots in the background. And so in the background, you can see nature's tendrils are coming up to undo everything, right? So there's this constant danger in a lot of uh, fairies work. It's really interesting. Okay. So it's the base, care and harm foundation is the basis of social organization. Humans have a long developmental period in which we are extremely vulnerable. To compensate for this, we developed attachment. So part of one of the big things that interacts with that is oxytocin. So oxytocin, just to give a kind of general sense of what this is, is released during uh, sexual behavior, nursing, labor, and uterine contractions, for example. Um, so it has a lot to do with creating attached relationships, fostering that attachment, and actually treat um, people with attachment issues using oxytocin. Uh, administering oxytocin to juvenile, naive, which means a virgin, um, female rats induces maternal behaviors. So the, they'll actually have like a bunch of uh, little baby rats that are not their own. And if they give her, uh, and she'll have never had sex. So she doesn't know what to do with these children, presumably, right? So is it, and then if it's a learned behavior, um, then this wouldn't happen. Um, but if it's a innate behavior, when you give her the oxytocin, she'll go into mother mode and start mothering all these things. So th there's an innate section here that you can activate using oxytocin with these. There's a mothering circuit in the brain. <laughs> That's exactly right. Um, oxytocin increases the sense of attachment in insecure attached style adults. So there you go. You can use the same, a similar thing happens in you. Um, that's just one piece. That's just one neurotransmitter that is associated with attachment. Attachment theory uh, came out of, was the result of John's, John, John Bowlby, I think was his first name. 
and Ainsworth, Mary Ainsworth. The sensitivity of mothers, another attachment for figures, forms an infant's impression of the world. This is one's internal working model or representation of relationships as such, which differentiates over time. Infants with more sensitive mothers are less fearfully reactive than those with insensitive mothers. So if you have a strong initial relationship where the, the mom will attend to the infant, the kid will actually become less, they'll react less fearfully to things right? because they know they have a secure base to rely on. They have a secure home, secure place. A maternal sensitivity rating and paternal sensitivity play uh, at one year old. So the dad seems to be more of a go out and encourage you into the world. And the mom is a, you have a safe place to return to. Um, this predicts a 10 year old internal working model. So there's a long longitudinal study. So 10 years later, the child will still have a similar internal working model. A maternal caregiving at 18 months predicts attachment style 20 years later. So ain't that something. So this definitely has some pretty remarkable, um, long-term impacts and attachment theory is like well worked out. I don't actually meet a whole lot of people that are working on it exactly in part because it's kind of taking this canon now. Mm. <laughs> Pretty interesting. It came out of a Freudian background too, which this, the Pieta Occulta, that's like, that is the eatable complex that Freud was talking about. That dynamic. Wow. It's like perfect. It's a perfect representation. Okay. Uh, did I, there we go. Um, so here's some cool stuff that I came across. This is from Feeney, 2016, 1990. I mean, she wanted to, I think uh, was looking at kind of love styles and was using a lot of the Greek language for all the different kinds of love to talk about these attachment styles. So somebody who you can either be an attachment there, you can either be securely attached. So you have a healthy relationship, the attachment figure, their secure base and so on. Or you can have one where you don't believe that your attachment figure will be there to help you. So this is insecure, um, attachment base. Um, and so the world even begins to look like something uh, insecure. And we'll get to that in a moment. Um, there's two different kinds of, actually there's three, but there's two main kinds of uh, insecure attachment. One is um, avoidant and one is anxious. You can think of avoidant as not bothering with attachment at all. Like forget it, I'm out. I'm gonna rely on myself. Or anxious, which is like clingy. Don't leave, don't leave, don't leave, right? Like stay here, stay here, make me feel secure. And so she talked about these different love styles and you have, um, for a secure person, they have arrows. So this passionate love and they'll have agape, this kind of sense or selfless love that the Greeks talked about where avoidance seems to do flutus or this game playing love. I've met people like this, that they're sort of, um, entice you in because they kind of want it, but then they withdraw and they entice you in and then they withdraw and it's because they want you, they want to be close in some sense. And they want the benefits of feeling secure, but they also don't trust you to be, <laughs> to be there, to, to be something stable they can rely on that, that in some sense you're dangerous. So they want you, but they're, but you're dangerous. Um, where, uh, the anxious type will be manic, mania, possessive love that they're trying to hold and cling forever. So this extends in a more abstract way, well beyond um, just your relationships with individuals, um, which is why I say that it, an internal working model is not just a representation of relationships. It's a relation, it's a relationship with a person 
is something like relationships as such, including your relationship to God or a political system. So for example, um, secure people with secure attachment will have a correspondence style relationship with God. So they'll, they'll like check in, how are you doing? It's good to talk to you again, blah, 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 blah. Where insecure attachment types will have a compensatory relationship where they're using it as something like a um, omnipotent attachment figure or this perfect foundation upon which they can rely. So the anxiously attached people will cling to God. Over a four-year period, uh, anxiously attached women were more likely to convert and report religious experiences and securely attached women. Avoidantly attached people were more likely to be agnostic or atheist. So isn't that interesting? Wild. <laughs> um, in, pol in the political systems, so in political belief, anxiously attached people will be more authoritarian or interested in authoritarian beliefs because they want to cling to a stable state, right? A, not a, just a state of mind. They're trying it to sounds produce like Hobbes. It's yes, very much Hobbes. It is so Hobbes, which <laughs> is amazing, right? And right, right, extreme external reliance is what they're doing. And then an avoidantly attached person will be interested in social dominance that they, they want to climb up that hierarchy constantly. And that's this form of extreme self-reliance. I will protect, protect me, right, is the kind of attitude. Hmm. Fascinating. Now, none of these studies are representative of everything. And I'm sure that there's more studies that there's probably some out there that contradict it or something. But it, it should give you a general sense of the picture. Yeah. So you can activate this care harm thing in a couple different ways. Um, so it's formed uh, by this parent-child relationship, right? And cuteness behaves as a social stimulus, um, triggering either care or play. So that's kind of theorizing by Sherman attachment. So you can imagine that cuteness is the thing that activates your care or harm uh, foundation that begins to shake the branch. And when it's later abstracted, um, pattern deviation aversion, one's reaction to known geometric patterns being broken, predict greater condemnation of harm. So I put up the little arrows there, mm -hmm. right? It's annoying. <laughs> it's really annoying that those especially are not for, in the Especially place. for you, Joe. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, I have a different reaction. So this is interesting because the fact that this is activating condemnations of harm, right? So this care foundation is that what's going on there is that some number of people will look at this pattern and say, you heard it. Really? Right. That's, that's not what they'll say, but that's like the metaphor. That's the, in a oh. deep set is that the reason that it's reactivating their care foundation is because they, in some deep unconscious sense, think that somebody hurt the pattern. That's wild. I, I don't and get that, that. I don't get that reaction either. I just like, I just want it organized. That's, that's just, not really, <laughs> yeah, right. We'll get to that one. <laughs> This is not because I, that study has two major findings and the <laughs> other one is applicable to a different foundation that we'll get to in a moment. Sweet. Uh, uh, so care harm in some. Um, it had an adaptive challenge, which is to protect and care for children's original trigger was suffering distress or uh, neediness expressed by one's child. Uh, current trigger, it seems like puppies are cute cartoon characters, right? Or a broken pattern. Uh, characteristic emotions are things like compassion. It's relevant virtues are caring and kindness. That's just taken right from the righteous mind. All right. Fairness and cheating. We've got another really beautiful painting that I love. The Allegory of Justice by Giorgio Asari. This was actually commissioned, so he was asked to do this. And it's probably one of the most sophisticated pieces of um, symbolism that I've seen. 
So the bare-breasted woman there, she's justice. Um, the bare breasts is goes way back to um, to the Amazons. So the mythology of the Amazonian women was that they'd have a single breast out, or that they would cut off one breast, and now so that when they knocked their arrows, they could come back and it wouldn't. They could let go of the arrow without the string hitting their breast. So they would actually cut off one of them. Hypothetically, it's not actually clear that the Amazonians never existed. And they might have actually been to some degree an insult about the Persians that the, the Greek men were be, would be like, uh, we're calling all of the Persians women. It's just hilarious. <laughs> that sounds like something the Spartans would come up with just for propaganda's yeah. sake. Right. And so I don't know if that's true and there's debate about this, but it's funny. Um, but it's also associated with, justice is associated with um, um, with Athena. And so you can see she has a warrior's helmet on here. That's very Athenian. Um, and so this is kind of an Amazonian warrior attitude um, behind the idea of justice. But on top of that, she's being presented a woman, a young woman who's holding um, these doves. And that young woman is a representation of truth. And so she's about to anoint truth with um, a crown of uh, laurel or leaves here. and. She's being, her truth is being presented by an old man with wings and a um, hourglass on top of his head. So time flies. He's got the hourglass, right? So there it is, right? Bang, there's the image. It's, I love that that you reacted like that because that, that is exact. It's like, oh, click, right? It makes perfect sense. It's like this man, this old man, father time, is time flies. He's got the thing on his head and, and he's time presents justice with the truth. You see, yeah, the, the truth will, the truth will be revealed in time that we have to take time to understand that. And she's standing on top of all of the vices, these different mm. vices. So one of them's greed and there's some other ones and it's hard to see, but there's a couple of little cherubs that are bringing her, her armor in the background it's a really it's a very we don't have time to spend all the night on this but <laughs> it is a fascinating painting i'll have a link to the full image either on the website or just to the the wikipedia page of the of the photo so you guys mm -hmm. can peruse at your leisure so good i love it i'm so upset that i never got to get to any of this <laughs> i was like i could spend the entire time just talking about the painting Okay. On the on the the tree metaphor, I have this picture of um, this is Idrisil by Binur Magnuson, uh, which is another great representation of all of reality. It's the world tree and all this from um, Norse mythology. Yep. And for a whole bunch of reasons, this nails it. I mean, like wild. If you can read it, it's brilliant. Yeah, I feel like most people have lost the capacity to read that kind of imagery. <laughs> yeah, it helps to say it out loud sometimes. Like just saying, the old man has a hourglass, so that's pretty obvious. Yeah, um, with wings on his head, right? It's like he's time. He's associated with time. He's associated with flying. Time flies. Like just saying it out loud starts to reveal the meaning very quickly. Yeah, well, it's like I think people look at art in a very materialistic way. Like they, they, we we assume from a you know. Year 2020 or whatever, you know, 21st century viewpoint of art 
we take our lens and apply it to that. And it's just like, well, it's just a whole bunch of people. I see people in armor. It, you don't see like the underlying message anymore. Or like, yeah, we don't know the meaning anymore. Yeah. We don't know how to. And art is like almost nothing but meaning. It's like deep metaphorical meaning, but we've become so explicit and yeah. so um, almost like mechanistic and commodified and boring. <laughs> but we had really hard time reading these. Yeah. So I think you're going to probably blow some people's brains out when you, just by articulating that, I think it's going to unlock some I've got a painting for all of these. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so fairness and cheating. Um, equal proportion seems to be what actually makes up fairness. Um, so there's what's called equity theory. Um, a, quote, a central axiom is that the ratio of net gains, outcome minus inputs, two inputs must be equal for all participants. So basically the idea is that it's, equal proportion there as opposed mm -hmm. to just equality. However, um, children prefer equality until puberty, after which they transition to a proportional perspective. So it seems that children are very much interested in having equity in the way by being e equality of outcome. Um, but as you become an adult, you recognize that, that it's about the proportion of work, that how much work I put in actually seems to um, have an effect on the way that people reason about what's fair. Um, which I would point out that that means that suggests it doesn't mean, but it suggests that the people who are interested in equity in the, uh, in the, um, equality of outcome are infantile, like in a technical sense, in that they think like children <laughs> about these sorts of things. They, they have a undeveloped philosophy, right? They really, they're children. That's interesting. So, I don't know if this video will work. You'll have to tell me. Yeah. Oh, I don't know if I can play it like this. Oh, there it goes. Sorry. Uh, we don't need to listen to what you're saying. Oh, we need to see the, this hilarious bit. I think I've seen this before. Will it play? Yeah. Here we go. Goes. So um, they give her, I think she gives them a rock and they give it back. And then she gives them a cucumber. And so, okay, here you go. And then she ends up, here we go. She ends up giving one of them a grape instead of a cucumber. And then he gives it back. And then she gives the other monkey a cucumber instead of a grape. So they got different things. <laughs> and he's pissed. <laughs> Dude, it's amazing. Look at this. He's like, he is so fucking angry. Oh my God, dude. I, I didn't see the part where he threw the cute piece of cucumber. Like, he's, oh, he's still mad. <laughs> and she'll give him a cucumber again. He's like, oh, mother. <laughs> Dude, you like see little humans, like, like, you, it like feels like an infant reacting. Oh, it's hilarious. Like a I, or something. It's so yeah, it's really funny. So that's how deep that goes. I don't know when we, I don't know what, those are verted monkeys or macaws or what, but I don't know when we differentiated from them, but uh, we still get pissed. We said we all behave that exact same way to some so degree. <laughs> it's hilarious to watch it throw it though. Like, oh yeah. Everybody the, laughs the first time they see that. And the way he like looks away after he like realizes he didn't get something yet. He's like, oh, are you, are you kidding me? <laughs> all right. So in some adaptive challenge for fairness and cheating is reap benefits of two-way partnerships, right? So that. This is, it's expanding beyond just parents. It's that it's like siblings, right? It's because 
when your parents have the reason that children, perhaps the reason that children um, like equity instead of this proportionality is they think that it's unfair is because your parents usually give both kids the same amount of food and you do whatever amount of work. It doesn't matter. Your kids, like you're just all trying to survive. You just go over the health food you get. As you become an adult, then you have to work for your food and you understand that um, you're not a charity case. You're not a child. Um, so you're learning how to navigate that space and fairness is emerging out of this. Right. So uh, reap benefits of two-way partnerships and original triggers, cheating, uh, cooperation, deception. Uh, current trigger, marital fidelity or broken rules, right? Characteristic emotions, anger, uh, gratitude, uh, guilt, mm. relevant virtues, fairness, justice, trustworthiness. Right? These are important things. Okay, loyalty and betrayal. So this is the death of Caesar by Jean-Léon Jerome. So I really like a lot of the stuff he does, but this is pretty beautiful. So this is right after Caesar's been murdered. He's in the, in the front and you see everybody's celebrating the, really in the, in the main focus of, of the painting. I'll go into this one a little bit less. Okay. Chimpanzees patrol their borders, raid other troops, kill opponent troop members and steal their females. Isn't that interesting? So chimps will go to war. And uh, humans, so if you, <laughs> bride stealing was one of the biggest motivations for warfare back in the day. Think Helen of Troy, hmm. right? They're going to take Helen. That's why the Trojan War happened, <laughs> right? And so we're still, we were still doing the chimp thing. And there was some, I think it was David Buss. I heard on a, on a podcast a while back talking about how there were interviews with um, like Aboriginal tribes had been largely isolated and they were asked why do you get they go to war why do you guys go to war and they're like women clearly women and resources and and then they're like why do you go to war and they're like freedom and all these abstract ideals and stuff and all these aboriginal tribes are like what the fuck is wrong with you people <laughs> and they're like there's only one reason to go to war <laughs> i mean i think i think you know it kind of makes sense right if you if you're following most tribes are probably around the Dun dunbar's number at most right because if it gets any bigger than the 120 people or so um it probably fragments and then those people have to leave or some portion of those people leave to go form a new tribe right just from a competitive resource and just a logical stability i guess if they're not agricultural um but also, if you're living in a small group of families, you need new genes. Otherwise, uh, things get squirrely real quick. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's all the royals. <laughs> right, dude? Victorian England was weird. <laughs> so, therefore, warfare is older than agricultural and industrial society. Sorry, Rousseau. You're fucking wrong. <laughs> yeah. All right, so Islamic tradition punishes apostates. The seventh circle of Dante's Inferno is reserved for traitors. Brutus and Judas are both there. Uh, loyalty predicts partisanship, regardless of party identification. So there's, a, so there's a certain amount of loyalty here that people will be loyal to their political parties. Shocker. Hmm. They can be loyal to a brand. They can be loyal to a political party. Adaptive challenge, forming cohesive coalitions, right? So we're expanding now even beyond the family domain. We're trying to get a, something like a cohesive group to work together. And that's why it's necessary is a, why loyalty is necessary. 
regional trigger threat or challenge to group, current trigger, sports teams, nations. Uh, characteristic emotions, group pride, rage at traitors, relevant virtues, loyalty, patriotism, and self-sacrifice. All right, authority and subversion. So one quick note, authority is not power, right? So this, a lot of people will confuse that. Um, relying on Franz DeWald Height says, quote, but authority should not be confused with power. Even among chimpanzees where dominance hierarchies are indeed about raw power and the ability to inflict violence, the alpha male performs some socially beneficial functions. He resolves some disputes and suppresses much of the violent conflict that erupts and there is no clear alpha male. So the painting behind here is the signing of the Magna Carta by Albert Herter. And I think mm. it's actually hung up in the Wisconsin um, Supreme Court. You, I think you can go see it there. That's the state Supreme Court. Um, and it's really interesting. I don't know how many people know the history of the Magna Carta, um, but it's actually an expression of this, of, not, of authority not being power, or at least a recognition of that. It's considered one of the most important legal documents in, in history. Yeah, so the Great Charter is what that means. Uh, was signed in or twelve fifteen, King uh, by King John and his barons, um, who demanded that he obey his own damn laws <laughs> because he was going around and causing a lot of problems and being a real tyrant and acting all like the alpha chimp and but not with the reciprocal part. Um, he refused. He refused to sign it. So they captured London and forced him to negotiate, and then even the king was proven to need to subordinate to his own laws. Right, so there's something higher than the king is part of what recognizes it. something like an ideal That's like, really that they've all agreed to. Um, but that shows that even King John um, doesn't get to be a brutish tyrant, though yeah. it can get away. I mean, one of the things that I remember from Height, his, one of his favorite examples he likes to bring up is if you have a tyrant chimp leader, Basically, that tyrant chimp is going to have a bad day, either be sick or wounded or something. And then all the other chimps that are the, you know, the subordinates, the male ones, uh, I should be clear, will then take him out in very um, graphic ways. Let's <laughs> um, and then you're no longer top dog anymore. So there's, there's like a, even though you might be the alpha, there's still reason to be at least somewhat kind or maybe not in chip society, but let others have some power. Yeah. And we're much, much better at this. Yeah. We sort of split <laughs> the difference between bonobos who are just like free love, man, but in a real wild way. Yeah. <laughs> the only sexual partner that's off limits is the, or sexual relationship that's off limits is the mother and her son when he's under six months of age. But once he gets older than that, all, every it's all fair game. Everything is fair game with the bonobos. Bonobos are wild. <laughs> oh yeah, but we don't go that far in that direction either. Yeah. we're in a happy medium. Thank God <laughs> for probably, that. <laughs> probably part of why we're successful, actually, is that we found a healthy medium here. Mm -hmm. Anyway, okay. So you pre uh, or how do you say you uh, you foreshadowed Dunbar. Yeah, it so a, a lot of uh, authority <laughs> stuff, it, it, you can think of it like a nested hierarchy that we've got building here. So mother, child, family, extended family, tribe, city, state, nation, civilization, right? You can start to build out the size of your group, whatever that group is. Uh, relative neocortex size predicts group size in primates. 
that's pretty interesting. That includes us. Hmm. Um, but that means that uh, chimps who have a smaller neocortex have a smaller social group. So their Dunbar's number is smaller than us. For us, it's 150. Um, with concentric circles, like these intimacy circles. So five close friends, uh, 15 good friends, those with whom you spend your Saturday evenings, you know, maybe not the ones that you share all your life with. Um, then 50 regular friends, 150 people that you kind of keep track of, like close acquaintances. After that, they're Facebook friends, which means they mean nothing. <laughs> oh, I also want to, there's an old Bedouin saying you probably heard. Um, that's me and my, me against my brother, me and my brother against my cousin, me and my brother and cousin against the stranger. Yep. So you see the same dynamic. It's like, me, out. I think the modern version is like me and my brother and my cousin against the world or something like that. But yeah, it's, it shows a lot of like the tribal dynamics that form, especially that's playing out across like the, the, the quote unquote culture wars you see on Twitter or Facebook, things like that. I think they did a study too. I'm not sure if you've heard of it, but they did a study about how many people have uh, Facebook friends that are around the Dunbar's number, like, or, right. or rather, how many of the, like, they do studies, like, confirming how many of those people you actually know, and then they, yeah. they basically end up co correlating to the Dunbar's number, rather than, no. like, the thousand or whatever friends you have, it says you have, it says, you know, you're like, hey, I only know about a hundred and whatever. Yeah. And these aren't stable things either. It's not like you have five friends that will remain your closest five friends for eternity. It's kind of a cognitive load issue that you can only process so much information. So it, it, it might change. It's like one friend becomes part of the 15, while another one of those 15 ends up entering the five-person circle for a few years, and then you move, and you know, these things change. Yeah, it's not static. Okay, so a big part of this uh, is serotonin. So getting a sense of how these larger coalitions start to form and how somebody arises up and down these hierarchies. Um, you can, serotonin seems to act like a, like a system that actually tracks this, tracks where you are in this hierarchy. So lobsters who have, a, who have lost a dominance encounter will refuse to fight for several days, taking on a losing mentality unless mm -hmm. given serotonin. So they inject them with serotonin and then they'll start fighting again. They get all competent and puffed up. <laughs> Uh, Prozac increases dominant status of vervet monkeys. That is a hilarious study where they had, um, at the same time they took out the alpha male monkey, they, they gave Prozac to one of the subordinate males. And then all the females notice that there's something different about him. They notice that there's something different first. Do you know what that is? Do you know what that is? That's like the, no, there's something different about you. Oh, <laughs> Nah, baby, I'm fine. All those, all those moments in the movies where the guy gets the transformation, he puts on a suit, gets a haircut, like puffs himself up and walks into the, into the office and people start to notice, right? His serotonin just went through the roof. It, it went through the roof. He behaves in a different way. People take notice, right? So he, that, that, that monkey becomes the top of the social dominance hierarchy when the other one is absent. And then what they do is they get rid of his, they stop giving him Prozac and then they reintroduce the monkey that was the alpha before and they go back to the way that they were because Wild. the one that was dominant probably had higher uh serotonin regardless huh fascinating that's yeah. so wild i can't believe they were able to pull that study off i, I feel that's, like the the review boards would not let that happen just today 
Well, let's see, 91. I think with some of the, Yeah, well, it depends. They're a lot more strict than they were back then. <laughs> Macaw monkeys de- with depleted tryptophan, which is a precursor to serotonin. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess eat more turkey. Uh, take great risks. <laughs> Isn't there tryptophan in bananas? I think so. Well, you think I'd be doing all right, but here we are. <laughs> I eat bananas every day. <laughs> Uh, I'm sorry. Macaw monkeys with depleted tryptophan take greater risks in a gambling exercise. Okay. So what happens there is that when your when your body thinks that you're low in the social hierarchy, you've got nothing to lose, and so you take greater risks in order to on the, the off chance that the gamble pays off and you raise you don't fall off the edge of the world here, right? Um, increased serotonin in humans increases pro-social behavior via harm inversion. So as opposed to the lobster who does, who starts fighting when he gets all puffed up, humans who feel like they're in a good position in the social hierarchy will give back. They start doing an increase in social behavior where if we're low, then we start acting out out of desperation. So homicide rates are correlated with income inequality. Hmm. And that is an income inequality in that it's, it's that if you look at places where um, there's a poor neighborhood and a poor neighborhood, the violence is not that bad. If there's a rich neighborhood, rich neighborhood, not that bad. But when there's poor neighborhood next to rich neighborhood, yeah. violent. It's the great Why? Because now all the stimuli that point out where you stand in the social hierarchy are way disproportionate. Yeah. Right. You have well, you're you know, eating McDonald's and you watch that dude drive by in a Mercedes Benz or whatever, a Bentley. And now suddenly you feel like your brain, that part of your brain, the serotonin yeah. system is going, oh, you're fucked. You're fucked. You're fucked. Better do something quick. You better take a gamble, take a risk, do something crazy. Homicide rates go up. It's, it's just an evolved version of that monkey not getting the grape. That's all it is. It's the same shit. No, that's a different foundation. So they, they'll act a different. That's the fairness one. Uh, it's more. It's more about status than uh, it is fairness. It's a signal of status within the hierarchy, rather right. than. And if well, you can imagine it's it's actually dangerous if you're low in status, right. in our evolutionary past. Because if you're really low in status, nobody's backing you up. You're not a part of a coalition. You're vulnerable. Right. You're part of. You're like one step away from being exiled, which means you're right. alone, which means you die effectively. That's exactly right. Which is why they're you're willing to take the risk. Because it's, it's either I die in the wilderness, abandoned, or I maybe die in a prison somewhere, but it might also work out. You know, I might get something. I might, you know, whatever it happens to be. Yeah. And I think there was, I forget who the author was, but I read a while back um, that um, in some of these neighborhoods, going to prison becomes a status boost. Right? That it's, it's a... Right. It's a, it's, it's a toughness thing. It's, it's showing off. So right. go, doing something like this is becomes incentivized. I, it might be like a hillbilly elegy or something like that, where they talk about the honor culture side of this stuff that's prevalent in the South, but also inner cities. Mm. Because when you're, when you're in such a low status areas of the world or in unequal areas of the world, the, the hierarchy that is common within like middle class or upper middle class disintegrates because it just doesn't exist because the system hasn't doesn't work there so you fall back to older versions of human society which is honor culture yeah it seems to me like honor culture is a necessary thing 
when times are really bad. Yeah. Like in a, in a sense, like you can't trust people to do the right thing. So you create an, a bottom up social, like moral enforcement mechanism in the form of honor. And then the honor culture emerges basically just to keep everyone in damn line. Yeah. And that's the only way you can hold it together. <laughs> it's a, it's a crude mechanism for, for order when you have very little. <laughs> that might be in some sense, like, unless you want things to get worse than they already are, you need to have a strong moral population that people need to be considering each other, that we need to be looking out for each other. Otherwise things will degrade into potentially a more violent and well, more like another culture. Yeah. It reverts itself. Yeah. Okay. So rates of depression and anxiety in kids aged 12 to 17 have increased since 2011, 2012, uh, since the advent of social media, self-harming girls aged 15 to 19 is up 62% since 2009, 189% in 10 to 14 year old. 2010 to 2011, half of teenagers get a smartphone with access to social media. So what is one of the things that social media might be doing? Um, the same thing that the rich next to the poor neighborhood does shows you all these people who are better off than you. And now you think you're about to fall off the edge of the world. Yep. It's the comparison is the thief of joy. Can say nothing about the fact that depression is often treated with serotonergic, um, based that's a, yeah. eyes, right? The yep. serotonin reuptake inhibitor, selected serotonin reuptake inhibitor. So they're using. So it's something like depre the assumption is something like depression is actually um, that you feel like a loser. And so we give you serotonin to artificially jump you up the, what your brain perceives where you are in the social hierarchy and that helps treat the depression. Okay. In sum, the adaptive challenges forge relationships within hierarchies, the original triggers, the signs of dominance and submission, current trigger bosses, respective professionals, Characteristic emotions, respect and fear, relevant virtues, obedience and deference. All right. Sanctity and degradation. So this is the allegory of chastity by Hans Memling, 1475. So this is a medieval, um, bursting into the Renaissance. So you can kind of tell the medieval stuff is really flat and lacks depth, but this is right when the Renaissance is beginning. So they're opening up, right? The, the Renaissance is about expansion. It's about opening your mind. And the art reflects that. Even Miguel Chris notes this, is that, is that there, there's a depth that gets introduced, a depth of field right, that, that starts to emerge in all the art. And this is like the beginning of that. You can see that there's a background that's opening up. It still has a medieval tinge to it and the way that people look and these sorts of things. Um, but it definitely begins to, it's, be, it's a right, the, right at the verge of the Renaissance emerge. Yeah, you can see it even with the lion, the proportions are off, but it's still like trying to get more. Right. Three like the foreground looks very medieval. Yeah. But as you the go back, but they're starting to pull it back. They're trying to, they're opening their minds up. They're beginning huh. to go, whoa, look at all of this. And of course, um, everybody's very thrilled about the enlightenment. They think that the enlightenment is the big deal. And look, we've systemized things. We create science and all this. But that only, that was a systemizing of the discoveries that the Renaissance made. It, it, it's, it's derivative as far as I'm concerned. The Enlightenment is derivative. <laughs> um, so she's is chastity and she's behind walls. She's protected, right? So there, there, and she's high, she's above everything, right? So there's something like purity is a part in that she is untouchable, but um, also uh, sacred in that she's above everything. 
she's protected by these lions. Lions are, it's a pride of lions. There's a certain element there. Very, it's an interesting piece of work. Okay. Uh, so, <laughs> so sanctity and degradation, right? So I am going to read to you something that will activate your, uh, underlying foundation. All right. In early 2001, Armin, I think it's Maves or pronounce a German, uh, computer technician posted an unusual advertisement on the web, quote, looking for a well-built 21 to 30 year old to be slaughtered and then consumed. Hundreds of men responded by email and Maves interviewed a few of them as farmhouse. Bern Brandis, a 43 year old computer engineer was the first respondent who didn't change his mind when he realized that Maves was not engaging in mere fantasy. On the evening of March 9th, the two men made a video to prove that Brandis fully consented to what was about to happen. Brandis then took some sleeping pills and alcohol. But he was still alert when Maves cut off Brandis's penis after being unable to bite it off, as Brandis had requested. Maves then sauteed the penis in a frying pan with wine and garlic. Brandis took a bite of it, then went off to the bathtub to bleed to death. A few hours later, Brandis was not yet dead, so Maves kissed him stabbed him in the throat, and then hung the body on a meat hook to strip off the flesh. He's later arrested and convicted of manslaughter. Not murder, because the guy consented. And this is often used as an example to fuck with libertarians. <laughs> By the way. Because everyone consented, so... Consenting adults, they should be allowed to. But it is disgusting. Yeah. It yeah. is disgusting. <laughs> Disturbing. Uh, I don't know. Woo. And disgust is the underlying thing that activates sanctity and degradation. I can't believe people respond to the words. Ah, okay. We have, I know you know about this, but we yep. have more food options, but many of those foods can be toxic, infected with microbes or parasites, and poisonous. More options, more risks. That's the problem that omnivores have. Disgust evolved to prepare us in lieu of experience for dangerous foods and circumstances. We wash and burn bodies. Both water and fire are symbolically cleansing. You'll notice that anytime somebody has a transformational experience in a movie, it rains. Or they're on the beach, for example, in The Whale at the end. Water is very much cleansing. It's purifying. And so that's constantly, or you get a fire. That's a clara, what's a Usually a burning off that something yeah. has to be destroyed. I mean, you know, it's like fire is so prevalent in anything zombie related, right? Like burn the bodies constantly. Yep. And that was a necessity that like that symbolism emerged from reality, right? It's not arbitrary. Mm -hmm. Just say, so, I mean, well, anytime you hear about plagues, right? Like plagues, it's always, you, you see either iconography or hear stories of, well, they just made fire pits and just threw bodies in. Yeah. And you'll get this kind of symbolism everywhere, like uh, Cersei in. Game of Thrones, mm. spoilers, everyone, in years, uh, and you're not missing much, <laughs> but blows up, uses this green fire to just green is usually something like decaying, like unhealthy, um, this green fire to burn this like church and kill a whole bunch of people. Right. So she's doing, she's cleansing them. That's part of the idea. Um, abstracted to represent infectious ideas, practices, and people. So 
disgusting smells, rooms, and recollections, as well as disgusting videos, all increase the severity of moral judgments. It's mediated by your awareness of your own body, hmm. whether you notice you're disgusted or you can sense that. Something like sensitivity. But disgusting films elicit Parker moral judgments than sad films or neutral films. Sadness elicited softer moral judgments than neutral or disgust. Might be a care thing going on there. Um, pattern deviation aversion, that same thing with the pattern that was broken, right? So this is me and you, not the, we're not going to react that way. The broken pattern predicts greater condemnation of impurity. <laughs> that it's, it's disgusting. Fix it. <laughs> it's impure, right? You broke your thing. And the alchemists considered gold to be valuable metal, not because it had its, just its functions, but because it was pure. Not solely right for its functional use. It, it, there's yeah. a purity to gold, right? And that's part of what created its value. Same thing with silver too, because silver is one of the only metals in the world that doesn't have uh, it, it kills a lot of bacteria. <laughs> that's, that's why pretty... that's where the vampire thing I think comes from with like the silver stakes. Uh, yeah, huh, that that is that makes sense. Yeah, or like the silver bullet with yep. werewolf. This yep. whole thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Supposedly, is you can it it has some sort of alchemical property that makes it you know, ward off evil in some... Yeah, you're, you're, you're purifying them. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Of their, their, yeah. of their possession, right? Hmm. That's interesting. I didn't put those two together. Um, infectious disease predicts democratization. So they let, these people looked at a, a metric ton of countries and huge sample okay, sizes. So it's a meta, a meta style right? city. It's giant, like, pot, like amounts of data. I have no idea how you would about this, but... Um, so infectious disease comes through, right? Infectious democratization, property rights, gender equality, sexual freedom. Um, so with democratization, as infectious diseases increase, democratization decreases, which is to say resources flow less freely, mm. right? So you, you put boundaries between you and other things, right? That's part of what disgust is, as opposed to fear. Fear is very different than disgust. Disgust is Get it away from me. Right? It's like, quick, get it away. Yeah. And so what's happening there is um, it's the other becomes something to get away from. Property rights, more disease, less property rights. Everybody hold, hoards their own thing and you don't give out property to other people so much. Gender equality, more disease, less gender equality. Sexual freedom, same thing. Less sexual freedom. That's not surprising. STDs no, yeah. are, in fact, a disease and are disgusting. And that's that's they trigger disgust. And it's a very direct applicability to it. So you can see the symbolism of virginality being pure. I'm making mm -hmm. literal. And that you, if you are a virgin, you don't have a sexually transmitted disease. Unless you somehow got it from your parents, right? Yeah. Uh, you can see where the purity idea with this kind Man, of thing. It's really interesting just think, thinking about these like five points in relation to the last couple of years. Because it's like, damn, we're, we, we reacted very much the same. <laughs> oh, yeah. Right, people. And I know it'll actually predict greater increases in, um, you know, there'll be, people will be, vote more conservatively. Mm, that doesn't So surprise. disease comes through and people start to vote conservatively because um, it's something like, conservatives actually represent that moral foundation better 
I'll get to actually some of the differences in the political views later. Um, last point in the sexual freedom issue, there was a marked increase in infectious disease in the U.S. and Britain during the 1960s and 70s, so the sexual revolution. So that's pretty interesting. Increase or decrease in sexual dis or diseases. Right, so there's a decrease in disease around everyone, and then suddenly there's a sexual revolution. So things become mm. more open and sexually free when things are healthy. People yeah, are like, everything's crazy. good, let's get after it, woohoo. Yeah. You, you watch the next decade, guarantee you, it's already beginning, guarantee you less sexual freedom. This, hmm. the, 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 the Tinder world, these things are going to die off. Oh yeah, we've been, there's lots of problems with that. I've been listening to tons yeah. of podcasts on the deterioration between, I mean, just, I, w I don't want to call it sexual relationships, but just the divide between status in men and women that's mm. forming over the last like 20 30 years and it's in the sexual realm yeah just in the sexual realm but like educational attainment and then the hierarchies oh, yeah. that develop between men and women like what do women look for as they become more successful in the workplace etc 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 like totally derails the conversation we're having right now but definitely what i want to have at least some point in later this year because i think it's really fascinating to see the societal shifts that are happening with the women becoming more and more the breadwinners slash attaining higher levels of achievement than ever thought possible historically. Yeah. I heard that, well, I wonder if it's largely white women that are becoming professionals. I suspect mm. that a bunch of them will end up not married um, or in failed marriages, so divorced. And that many um, men will end up going to, um, I suspect, Hispanic women because the population of Hispanic women coming up is growing. Um, some number of them, you might find a more traditional culture that men are interested in instead of dealing with the professional women, um, as well as um, they won't be the breadwinners. That they have been brought into the, the, oh. uh, I don't think that the, the Hispanic women that are coming in will have been brought so quickly into the professional pipeline right. in order to make more money than the men who, so they're able, so the men are more interested in selecting them. Yeah. That makes so sense. So you have a whole bunch of guys with, with women, immigrant wives, um, and then a whole bunch of very lonely professional women. Damn, that's a fascinating theory. I haven't heard that yet before, but just from my what I've read and listened to on this, that checks out. I would totally buy that. I mean, I'm hypothesizing here. Right. On the fly. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I think you're onto something there, especially because like coming from an immigrant mentality, that means you, you're, you're having a less well-developed liberal demo democratic viewpoint that most educated women have here in the United States. Like, obviously, this is all based off of the United States and you're probably coming from an upper middle class or middle class family. And, you know, this is in the water we drink effectively here. So, of course, you're going to have a certain idea of what it means to be a woman that's probably, you know, I'm a boss bitch or whatever you want to call it. Um, and you just don't want to settle, right? And this is, I'm not, this is no critique on individuals here. This is just looking at how society is going to play out in the next 20, 30 years. Right. Yeah. I, I really think that it's going to, push in that direction it probably already is 
Oh, I think I think it's like in the, correction in the will be our kids. You know what I mean? <laughs> so um, there was a poll a while back. I think it was either in the Atlantic or the Washington Post. This is when I was still in Michigan. It was asking different demographic groups if um, political correctness had gone too far. And the only group that said that it didn't, the only group was overeducated rich white women. So these professional women, right, that have adopted this attitude that includes the idea that men are oppressive, patriarchal, whatever. I think men are sick and tired of that. So at the same time that they're being incentivized to go to immigrant women who aren't making more money than them, um, those women are also not indoctrinated into the woke culture. So they're being, at the same time, they're being drawn to those women. They're being pushed from behind by these women that don't fucking like yeah. them. Well, they're being, not even being pushed from behind. They're almost being kicked in the ass and say, see you later. <laughs> and well, those women will get their, really, they will get exactly what they asked for, which is that they will be alone. Yeah. And then they'll, they'll realize, they might realize too late that, oh, wait, I wanted to have a family or whatever that looked like for you. And now you're 45 and you've got everything you wanted except that one last thing. It's sad. It's, it really it's actually, I, I don't take any, any, I don't take any joy in saying that because I think people are being sold half a bill of goods when they're being told you can go be successful and make six figures or whatever it is that you want to make as a successful business person or whatever. But I think we should be asking people, what do you really want? Not what is society looking at you saying, well, women really want this because I don't know if that's really. Yeah, it's a bunch of bullshit. They've been, <laughs> they've been sold something. They've been sold. Here, here's the thing. A bunch of the second wave leaders of the second wave feminist movement had, were lesbians or had horrible relationships with men. I mean, would openly mention this horrible relationships with men. And this bled into the philosophies that drove this idea that no, you don't need no man. Mm -hmm. And then you should be a professional. Right. But this is. It's coming from people who are having horrible relationships. What about the people who could have good relationships? Right. Why did we push them in that direction? It's like, what are you selecting for from the theorists, right? Like if, if all you're seeing is these bad examples, of course that it, gets baked into the theory. Instead, you yeah. need someone who was of that same second wave feminist generation to push back and say, well, you guys say this, but also look at, this example, maybe it's not their life specifically, but someone should have gone and done that research and say, is there a healthy relationships being had? Because it's not all bad, right? Like if you blink at the situation, it's, you're missing half of the story. <laughs> it's just, it's like, okay, so we had a philosophy come up out of women who don't have relation, either good or don't have relationships with men who say that they're, that you should have professional lives as women. Women bought that, are very unhappy. Some of the most unhappy people, in the, really, in the United States, if you look at the stats on this, the really? least happy demographic are these professional women. Hmm. And they become unhappy. They look for justification for their unhappiness. They're provided a new philosophy in the form of wokeism um, that says that the reason that you're unhappy, right? We've got your answer. We have your solution. We know why you're unhappy. It's because of power and privilege and because of um, the patriarchy, which will only, it will only compound the problem. It's a way of doubling down on the initial mistake. And the solution would be to have 
to hum to be humble and to recognize that and just to be honest, you really think you're gonna get all your hot happiness from a job? It's like, no, we get our happiness in our meaning in life. There's research on that too, from our connections with other human beings, right? From our deep relationships. Yep. Why do you think you would get it from your job? The reason you're unhappy isn't because of the patriarchy. The reason you're unhappy is because you went into the professional realm where there's nothing meaningful for you. And that's it. You could be getting it from deep relationships, but that's you know, now the whole thing is messed up for other reasons. Right. And then, the, and then the flywheel breaks and then you loft, loft <laughs> trying to figure out what the fuck went wrong. Um, yeah. We totally tangented here, but just as a closing note, there's a book related to this called Die With Zero by Bill Perkins. I, I sent you a podcast on this. Um, oh. I'll put it in the show notes, but basically this guy, just in background, he was, he's a hedge fund oil trader type guy. So he like deals with oil futures, you know, predicting how much oil is going to be costing in the future and then make a bunch of money predicting that accurately. But this guy wrote a book basically optimizing for fulfillment in your life or like happiness. Basically, you shouldn't, have a bank account with a whole bunch of zeros at the end of your life what you should be doing is figuring out how to use that money when your body is able and you have the time to enjoy your time here with the people you love or doing the things you love at the very least so that you end up have like using up as much of your wealth as possible because you might as well go do those things now while you have the able body to do it instead of being like oh well i wait until i'm 50 or 60 years old after i've worked my ass off to be successful. This is like, this is not men, women. This is anybody I think should really take this to heart, but it's like, go do the things now when you can, because you'll get a lot more value with the people you care about now than by the time you're dead. And then you can't really enjoy it because your back's fucked up or whatever. <laughs> like, <laughs> like it's, it's like delaying gratification too far because it's like, well, I've got all this money and now I can't do anything with it. <laughs> it's like, yeah, congrats, I guess. <laughs> right. Not about the money. It's about your building relationships, particularly yeah. time of chaos, where you're going to need a community to survive difficult times, right? It, like being isolated and in bad times is a very bad thing. Fit <laughs> here. Anyway, so moving on with the sanctity degradation thing, here's some examples from religious thought. Um, so this is from Indus University in uh, India. Quote, the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali, I think I said that, um, describe Shaucha as Shaucha is that from which there arises dislike, i.e. dispassion towards one's body and detachment towards contact with others. Shaucha gives rise to purity of mind, contentment, one-pointedness, conquest of the senses, and competency to attain um, self-realization. Right, so there's all these purity of things, right? Contentment. There's purity of ideals in some sense. Then goes on to say that um, the same word, Chaucha, of a utensil may refer to whether it's clean or dirty. Right, so you get this idea that there's a very literal sense, but there's also a metaphorical sense of this, that all these high ideals are in some are emerging out of the very concrete, pure, impure utensil, right? Clean, unclean. Um, so this is from Eric Neumann in the Origins and History of Consciousness. Quote, the essence of the mythological canon of the hero redeemer is that he is fatherless or motherless. That one of the parents is often divine and the hero's mother is frequently the mother goddess herself. 
or else betrothed to a god. These mothers are virgin mothers. As everywhere in the ancient world, virginity simply means not belonging to any man personally. Hmm. Virginity is in essence sacred, not because it is a state of physical inviolateness, but because it is a state of psychic openness to God. The hero's birth is expressly attributed to a virgin. So there's, hmm. I think he's wrong. He's half wrong. It's in part about physical inviolateness to some, it's that, um, like I said before, if you're a virgin, you don't have an STD. So there's a very concrete version of purity, um, from not having sex. Um, but the more abstract sense is the idea of being, um, pure and married only to your ideals, right? That the virgin mother gives birth to a God's son because she is in some sense unified with a God, with an ideal. Hmm. She is pure in heart and mind, purely a representative of that God. So you can see again, it's a strange abstractness, this, this purity of self and being that you can have a virginal mother who gives birth to a son. It sounds in fact, very aspirational. It is. And part, it's really interesting because it actually suggests that in fact, all of these cultures that have this story, so it's all over the place. So a whole bunch of different cultures came to the same conclusion, which was that the woman who is wholly committed, right? Independent of anything else, right? She's virgin. She's not dependent on any man. She's independent, right? She's not tied to anything other than a marriage-like unity and commitment to our ideals is the type of woman who gives birth to a hero. Hmm. Right, so it, it tells it's you something that's fascinating. fascinating. I mean, it's fascinating. Right. I don't know why I was just thinking this, but I'm like, dude, it's Anakin Skywalker. It's Darth Vader. Because Darth Vader's, in, in the story at least, he, his mother was a virgin. Because when Qui-Gon asked her, she's like, who's the father? And he's like, don't know. Yep. You know, right. and then it's yeah. like he becomes this archetypal hero, you know, obviously fallen hero at some point, but then redeems himself, right? Like, there it is, hero redeemer. Like... <laughs> The mother of Romulus and Remus. Yeah. Romulus becomes the founder of Rome, right? Um, I mean, Jesus. Yeah, Jesus, the obvious The, the obvious, but, most. <laughs> but the, this is, you learn the father of Romulus is Ares. Oh, wow. So the, the, the father of Rome is war. Th that tells you something about their fucking culture, huh? Oh, yeah. I mean, they're one of the most warfaring oh. modern civilizations ever. Oh, it's wild. <laughs> or yeah, ancient. you can learn a lot. <laughs> but the father of the West is Yahweh. And the name of that God is I am. And so it's the oneness, the idea of the unity of all things. Hmm. That sounds right. So her, her commitment to whatever reality is as such, right? This kind of, to the grand, the, the majesty of all this is what brought up, brought Jesus into being. So that's an interesting one. You can understand a lot, under, knowing what that dynamic is, but that, like, re being able to read that bit is very interesting. Yeah. All right, moving forward. Um, in summary, quote, the Sanctity Foundation makes it easy uh, for us to regard something as untouchable. Both in a bad way, because something is so dirty or polluted that we stay away. And in a good way, because something is so hollowed or sacred that we want to protect it from desecration. 
the adaptive challenges avoided contamination, original trigger waste products, these people. So you get lepers, all the moral uh, things around lepers, for example. Uh, current trigger taboo ideas, communism, racism. Characteristic emotions, disgust. Relevant virtues, temperance, chastity, piety, cleanliness. All right, so here's a candidate. There's one they're exploring, could be the sixth foundation, which is liberty and oppression. Reactions to oppression. Alpha chimps can be ganged up on and on by subordinates and killed, right? So that when the oppressor comes, there's a countervailing moral foundation that is activated. And that's liberty. Development. The advent of weaponry in particular allowed for subordinate members of a hierarchy the ability to contend with troop leaders on a more equal playing field. This incentivized leaders to attend to the needs of the troop and to be a proper authority. Today, it's triggered by feelings of oppression or bullying associated with reactance or when you are told you could not do something and want to do it more, that feeling. <laughs> oh, oh, fuck you. I am going to do that. <laughs> it's interesting. It's, it's funny to me because the point about the evolution of weaponry makes me think that any feminist who wants the abolishment of guns, gun rights, is very confused because the, all the male dominance and strength and muscles go, will do nothing for a man if she has guns. <laughs> that it's a, the weaponry you know is how to use it. Yeah. And you know how to, right. And you know how to use it. Right. It's like, if you want, if you want the equality between the sexes arm women. Yeah. I mean, I'm going to be honest too, right now, even if you try to ban guns, it, they're not going away. Like it yeah, just, yeah. just Google ghost guns, dude, 3d printed guns are a business and it's really crazy. Yeah. And we, we can't <laughs> even get fentanyl out of the States. How the hell are we going to, anyway, Tangent, that's another, I'm just giving people a thing to go explore if they're really interested in that. Not that now I have to put all the addendums. Not that there aren't sensible gun control laws that you can hit. This I understand. It's again, I'm not. I'm not a give this, guns to children. This is maniac. not a two way argument. We're just talking about. <laughs> no. We, we we have to do the disclaimers. Okay, so on to film and moral foundation. So this is kind of a particular part for my lab. I'm um, one of the things that we're interested in. I do so some questions that you could ask. Do morally charged films trigger particular moral responses? The answer is yes. Right. We know that from the disgusting videos mm. and people having harder judgments. Do people rely on some moral foundations more than others? Also, yes, we know that. And on the top, what conservatives rely more on. So liberals rely almost exclusively on harm and fairness. Where conservatives rely actually on all of the foundations is not represented well here, but all the foundations, but particularly on in-group loyalty. Uh, authority and purity, right? So there's a difference in the, which foundations they're using. Um, so the gray bar that you see um, is the difference between, this is what actual liberals and conservatives rate. So you give them this questionnaire, um, how much do you care about these particular foundations? It's worded way different, but um, so that the gray bar, the pure gray bar shows what conservatives say about themselves or liberals say about themselves, what they actually care about. Okay. 
The straight bar is um, the most extreme versions of this. So the most extreme conservatives and the most extreme liberal, liberals rely on that foundation to that degree. Um, so more, shocker. Um, but they also had conservatives rate, pretend to be a liberal and then answer the questionnaire. How do you think a liberal would answer this? And they had liberals pretend to be conservatives and ask this. And the white bar indicates how that played out. So both sides think the other side is way more, way more extreme than even the most extreme members of that particular group. <laughs> so oh, it tells you how they are about each other. <laughs> I thought that's fucking hilarious. Oh, it's like shocker. We're not as crazy as we all think that the other person is. Dude, it's just Twitter. It's just Twitter. <laughs> just oh it's so fucking funny it's like if you actually get people to talk to each other you realize neither of you really are that crazy i mean you might be but like not really like the average person is not that crazy not that great <laughs> so there's a problem still uh if moral reasoning is a post-hoc justification designed to convince others emerge from past ecological conditions then is there a form of moral reasoning that accounts for the present conditions of one life, one's life? In other words, is there an update mechanism for these foundational systems? Right? How is there progress? If we're all just justifying innate structures, then the only way that those innate structures change is through long periods of evolutionary time. And so we wouldn't expect to see moral progress really much at all except for over extremely long lengths of time. Um, so is there something that accounts for this? I don't know. Let's explore. <laughs> Welcome. Step to the portal, please. <laughs> Quote, life can only be understood backwards, but it must be lived. I love this quote so much. So, right? It says so much. So wisdom. How does wisdom come about? So Webster came up with a model to try to define wisdom. And there's, this is very much on the edge. And so it's people, uh, it's not really clear what wisdom means, but a lot of people are talking. So I'm actually going to go through this at a little bit different thing. Um, so it's a bit of a meaning making process. First, there's a, his model is the hero model. H-E-R-O-E. -E. I'm going to begin with the first E which is experience, critical life experience occurs. Something difficult happens and you have to think it through, right? This is a disruptive event, right? It might be meaning violation, something I've read about or, I don't know, or trauma. Then you reminisce and reflect. So that's R. This is a meaning making. It's not rumination, it's meaning making. And you actually look at what happened and try to make sense of it. You would be open to experience. There's a openness element here. As personality trait, openness breaks down into openness to experience and openness to ideas or intellect. It allows individuals to approach novel experiences and ideas as a potential means of growth, right? To, to engage with a new way, a new perspective on the thing that happened to them as they reflect in order to make sense out of this thing. Emotional regulation, this allows for one to contend with the difficulty of their experience without being overwhelmed by the emotional state, allowing for Freudian catharsis as opposed to colloquial catharsis. Hmm. The colloquial version is the idea of venting, 
Just let your emotions take you over and they all come out. Where the Freudian sense was rather that it's putting words to emotions. It's identifying, it's a process of identifying how you feel and understanding how you felt, even in that circumstance. When you reminisce, hmm. I take a new perspective on that critical life experience, you can identify the emotions you felt in that, in the circumstances. And out of that emerges humor. And then you can be, these people are humorous. It's not taking oneself too seriously and seeing the irony in situations. Let's wise people use humor adaptively. So wise humor is non-defensive and characterized by playfulness, mature coping skills, pro-social bonding, and humility. If they're able to look at the circumstances and go, man, and laugh about it, you go, yeah, that was really hard. And I ended up in that because I was stupid. <laughs> and to be playful, not defensive humor where you're on the attack, but to laugh about it. This is fascinating. I mean, I, I'm like hearing you explain this and I'm like, what the, f I'm like, never heard of this before. And I'm like, wow. Like, but it's that, that wisdom is something that emerges out of the meaning making process yeah. is that you were, you were forced to take a new perspective on something because you were, you came colliding into some tragic event, right? You were forced to take whatever I was doing before led me here. So I can't keep thinking like what led me to this moment. I need to broaden out. I need to be willing first to look back at the event, try to make sense out of it. I need to open myself up to new perspectives so that I can see where I went wrong, so I can see what happens. I need to be able to not be captured by every emotion that comes my way, but instead be able to identify the pieces of that experience. And then out of that, I can be humorous. I can laugh about it. I can joyfully play my way through. I can dance through a minefield. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great way to put it. <laughs> And notice that it's actually the hero's journey. Hmm. So you have an equilibrated state and then that's the part one. So everything, there's an equilibrium in your life and things you found a balance, something, a disruptive event, a critical life event comes in, right? So, uh, Anakin or not Anakin, uh, Luke's aunt and uncle are killed, right? Disruptive event. You're forced into a hero's journey or to make sense of this. So you reflect. And reminisce. Now you can look back, right? So that's part of it. You're mining for wisdom is what you're doing there. You're looking for a lesson to learn. You get wisdom. And I think that there's a, that this process doesn't end with deriving wisdom from it. Exactly. It seems that, um, why, how would you say that, um, a lot of meaning in life comes from these pro-social things. It's, it's, it's going back to the community re-embedding yourself in, into that community, having learned a little lesson and providing that lesson to the next generation that produces for you now a sense of meaning in your life, right? And now you become the wizened old man who tells the story and the lesson to your tribe who are sitting around the campfire learning from you. And that's how we get moral progress is that you have a moral imperative to make meaning out of your trauma, hmm. you need to bring that back to your community so we don't keep making the same mistake. Other people will suffer in the same way you did unless you can make meaning out of it and provide them with that lesson so that they can avoid it. You are morally obligated for those people 
to do this. And it's the way in which moral progress occurs on a civilizational scale. So you have an obligation to the individuals around your local community and the progression of the human species at large. You, it's, it's not a fair moral obligation. Is it fair that you have to do this? But you are obligated. Hmm. Take that burden on. It's like you didn't ask for it, but it's yours. Okay. Oh, I kind of went through a lot of this already. <laughs> this is interesting though. So the search for meaning and meaning in life are associated with wisdom. I think that's probably the giving the wisdom back to your community. Um, but also um, it's a particular kind of meaning making. Redemptive processing versus exploratory processing. Redemptive processing is quote, how positively or negatively an individual interpreted the long-term emotional impact of a traumatic life. This is the happy ending approach. It's, it's the meaning they made out of it was, oh, well, it all worked out in the end. Mm. Or they all lived happily ever after. Yeah, but it's not a lesson. It's just, it's just, well, I don't feel bad anymore. Yeah. The exploratory process is a highly reflective process to which individuals deepen their self or life insight by constructing meaning surrounding a specific life event. This predicts wisdom. This is the openness. You're exploring the event, a willingness to look for the lesson. That's where you get the wisdom from. You can't just let it fade away into the past and suddenly you don't feel so bad anymore. Like look for the lesson. So meaning making tools. So we're psychedelics. This is a question mark. Um, there's some research happening about that now. Um, expressive writing, Penna Baker, 1999. Um, so if you write for four days, um, 15 minutes each day about, uh, experiences still causes an emotional reaction in you, right? So if you think about some breakup or, um, who knows some trauma in your past and you write about for four days, you'll actually have physiologically, uh, you'll be physiologically better. You'll go to the hospital less. Um, you'll also, there will be immune system markers in your blood tests that will positively increase. So there, it's probably that the cortisol decreases and then that, um, <laughs> stops poisoning you and everything else improves. So there, you will have a physiological reaction to making meaning out of these things. So not only will you be mentally better, you'll be physically better. Um, one of the indicators in writing is something like generic use, generic language is a meaning making marker, cognitive words, blah, blah, blah. You're like, yeah. Um, self-transcendence, I think is part of this openness to some degree. Um, this is a zooming out beyond yourself. I actually suspect that it's, um, really that's what it is, is that you're taking on the perspective of, of larger and larger groups and that the ultimate form of this is something like a complete self-transcendence where um, you identify as everything, the universe is such, and you'll have, right, so Jesus is the son of God, right? And God is everything in some sense. So he's a representative of everything. The Buddha would talk about how we're all one. It's all one thing. Um, self-transcendence predicts wise reasoning. One of the three studies, the authors confirmed the association between sweeping videos of nature, sensation of awe, and use this to elicit awe responses of participants. And they were more wise. They did more wise reasoning, right? Because you see a broader perspective when you look out at nature, 
you see things as living, as living and moving and breathing. You're part of this cycle. Think of a lot of this is the reconciliatory process. I'm going to, I'm not going to talk about this just because it's really typical. We can talk about happiness versus meaning. People rate benefits, benefits to society as being more meaningful than benefits to others or benefits to oneself, excuse me, when evaluating meaningfulness of jobs, other people's lives, and giving advice about how to increase meaning. Benefits to the self are rated as being happier or similarly happy compared to benefits to society, which is to say that if you're, this is reinforcing this idea that you return to your community and that's where you get your meaning from. When you go to help society, you get more meaning. If you go to help yourself, you get happiness. I wonder sometimes if life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness was a mistake and that we, it, 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 how would you say it directed our attention for the last 260 something years in the wrong direction. It should have been life, liberty, and meaning. <laughs> yeah. Liberty and pursuit of meaning. That's happiness is too individualistic. Now there's a problem with being individualistic to some degree. Right. But we're at the place now where we're atomized. And I live in this an apartment by myself and uh, in a box ordered around other boxes inside of a box, inside of a grid where other boxes are. And everything is a box. Everything is a line drawn around. Everything is atomized. Everything is categorized. Everyone has become an individual, not just, not a real individual where you are a sincere or organic, authentic expression of yourself. It's just, you're isolated. <laughs> and I think that's where happiness in a, might lead, seemingly. It's the wrong value. The use of wisdom and wise reasoning to serve the community, community may increase meaning in life. We expect that if you use wisdom acquired in the process uh, to serve your community, you will experience greater meaning. There we go. The end. We've done it. Fascinating. Good stuff. So it seems to me that a constantly in flux reality, a coincidence of opposites, coincidentia oppositorum, leads to a process ontology, leads to a pragmatic defini definition of truth and of goodness, um, that those good things that were most constant across great expanses of time were adapted to creating moral foundations out of which our moral reasoning emerges, which is updated on an individual and societal level by addressing your problems, by encountering a problem, reminiscing, understanding those problems, being open to new perspectives, um, uh, being emotionally regulatory by, um, being humorous and light and driving wisdom and then greater meaning in your life comes from taking that wisdom that you learned and giving it back to your community so that they can avoid the problems that you had. And we all update and move into the future as a result. And that that high point is mortal is, is the place I should be looking now for moral reason. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, there's so much to say on this topic, and I'm sure this is not the first nor the last time we'll be covering this because, oh yeah, <laughs> yeah, this is right up our alley, like both me and um, this one is a rich. This is a rich topic. Yeah, I mean, I have so much to say, but I'm canning it for right now. But I also want to talk to you about it offline because I have 
parallels here. It's kind of, <laughs> it's kind of wild, <laughs> and I don't cool. want to say it now because I want to be able to talk about it in a better way. Um, yeah, because it's so new. Uh, just given the state of, I mean, th- this just feels like we're we're hitting we're hitting the gas on something, and I'm really excited to keep exploring effectively. <laughs> this is this is the kind of research I'm really excited about. Is the wisdom stuff? It's really cool. Yeah, I'm st- this is dope. I'm excited to see where it goes. And I mean, this, I honestly think this kind of PowerPoint is, is something that people are sorely lacking. Um, I honestly don't see this kind of information really anywhere, unless you know a guy who's, you know, Jonathan Haidt, obviously is one of the big ones. Um, Peterson to some degree kind of does this stuff too, but outside of those two guys, maybe John Vervecki does some meaning making stuff, but yeah, yeah, like those three are the kind of the big guys in, in the space right now, at least from like a public persona standpoint. But, um, I mean, those guys are big, busy, and they have their own pet projects. I don't, I don't really know who the <laughs> who else does this stuff. They're not trapped behind a lab doing um, reports, you know, just <laughs> over and over again. So it's cool to see that. I mean, at least you are the one who have kind of taken it upon yourself to unpack this stuff. I'm trying. Yeah, <laughs> and that's all you can hope to do, right? <laughs> well, everyone, I'm sure. If there's comments or things we missed, I really would love to hear it, to be totally honest. Um, or if there's things we can explore in other detail, I would also love to hear that as well. So let us know. I mean, this was a lot of material and I mean, it was effective a lecture. So <laughs> just any, any and all feedback is totally wanted and um, will just help us get better at doing this. I don't see this really going away and we'll be back for more in the not too distant future. Adios.